farming is about food, right? And growing food from the land. Well, what else is about food? A few other things, including fishing. And we've talked fishing just a time or two here on this program, but it's very closely related to uh, many of the things that we talk about here on The Farming Show. Welcome back. I'm Dylan Honkoop here on KGMI. Um, fishing is related to farming not only, and I guess what we often talk about is the impact that farming activities on land may or may not have on fish, what the challenges are that fish are facing in our streams and in the ocean and what that means for regulation, right? This, this comes up a lot. And oftentimes it's connected to salmon recovery, but also fishing itself and commercial fishing, producing food. Those folks live in the same world that farming does in a lot of respects. And joining us right now is a commercial fisherman. We've had him on the program before. Uh, he's based here in Washington now, but uh, has decades of experience up in Alaska as well. Paul Burrell, welcome to the program um, this morning. Some interesting things happening in the world of fishing right now that wouldn't necessarily meet the eye if you just looked at the general media coverage about fish and trying to recover salmon. And, you know, there's a lot of concerns there, but maybe that's not telling the whole story. And that's really starting to impa impact you folks in the fishing world, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for having me on this morning, Dylan. It's, it's kind of a interesting new, new page that's being turned here in the, in the industry. You, you know, there's a lot of talk of lack of salmon, but the industry right now is telling us there's too much salmon. And the markets are full worldwide. Um, wow. You know, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. We haven't seen this situation for quite some time. That, that's the opposite of, of what you would think. Now, is it true then that certain populations of salmon are struggling or, or how does that work? Does that mean that there are some salmon that, that, that are abundant and some that aren't? You know, I think it's really hard to put a pin on one particular salmonoid, salmonid species because yeah. each river is different, you know, and each river produces differently every year. They they need to rest just like a, a farmer might rest his fields, have them be fallow or, yeah. or, or switch uh, switch crops on, the, on there. So I think some areas, they, there is some depressed populations, but worldwide, Pacific-wide, they're extremely abundant. Talk about what that's doing to the industry and just how serious the situation has gotten. I understand uh, some of the big players are are putting out warnings. Yeah, exactly. No, recently, I'm not sure how widespread this is, but industry-wide, there's been a, a massive price drop, um, you know, from some, uh, just for an example, chum salmon down 60 cents to 20 cents percentage-wise. That's massive. Yeah. Um, Overabundance and, you know, it's just the rest of the world is seeming to have higher inflation than we are we seem to be a little bit insulated but salmon's a widely a, a foreign market not so much domestic so people in other countries eat more salmon than we do much more much more european markets they love to have canned salmon um realistically the only people they much salmon in any massive numbers are the children with the food programs that um, the government buys many humpies or pink salmon right from so our children are probably getting some of the benefit from this which is which is good i love to see that it's it's a great food source 
Commercial fisherman Paul Burrell is with us right now on the farming show, um, talking about fishing, and you know that's it's very similar to farming in, you know, gathering and growing food from from the the sea. In their case, uh, the land. In the case of farmers that I usually talk to here on the program. But these worlds overlap in a lot of different ways, and it's interesting to hear this because this is a, uh, a side of the story that's rarely, if ever, talked about, and I think most people aren't aware of this, that there's actually a glut on the salmon market. Now, Paul, I know talking with you about how fishing actually works, a lot of these fish are harvested out on the high seas. Uh, between yeah. here and Alaska, how does that actually work, and who is harvesting? The, I mean, we think about oh, you know, fishermen from Washington and fishermen from Alaska. Well, there's a lot more players, especially once you get out into international waters, than just that. Correct, correct. That that those are some of the issues that um, different agencies are dealing with: the you know, high seas interception of, of salmon, and it's it's a it's a real thing that takes place and unfortunately you can't account for those numbers when, when they're lost in the market there's also um russia right now is producing tremendous amounts of salmon just last week they produced as much catch in that one week as alaska had produced statewide all season long which is wow it's it's staggering so where are they staggering. getting where are they getting these salmon from well um we gave them the technology to basically raise these um, we sold them boats and we taught them how to fish. And now it's um, kind of come back to, to haunt us a little bit. But um, in terms of their success, uh, they've, they've done great. And there's with some of the international conflicts going on, some of this product is being sent out extremely cheap to pay for this. So it's, so um, it's affecting the market. You say we, who, who do you mean we gave them these things or, or helped um, Russian, the Russian fishing industry? Well, the, the hatchery programs that are widely used up in Alaska are extremely successful. They've, they've taught the, these organizations in Russia to produce the salmon. They release the salmon. They go out and live their own free life on the ocean. They come back, and they come back to a common area, and they then harvest for what's called broodstock, which is your next couple years of fish coming back. And then the rest of the fish is used either for um, cost, what in the United States is called cost recovery and or um, the fishermen get that for, for common harvest. So we gave them the technology to do this. We even sent American fishermen over to show them how to use our well-adapted equipment. And, and now they're producing tremendously, much more than we are. On, on this side. Why is that? Why can't we produce more? And why are some areas still struggling in, in producing salmon? In, or, and now we're, what we're talking about here is hatchery fish, wild caught fish. We're not talking about farmed salmon? Correct. No, no. There's a very, they're very distinct differences. Farmed salmon is raised in a pen or raised on land. This is, this is wild fish. The, the original fish that came from our rivers and they're basically artificially inseminated, raised in raceways and released. And they go out and they live a number of years, depending on the type of salmon. And they return to their that stream that they imprint, that a salmon will imprint and return. They can smell that on the ocean as they get closer. And it's, it's a very amazing process. And they are wild fish, truly are. They, they even say they cannot tell whether these fish are wild or a hatchery fish when they do 
scale samples. So this, but this is through, and and I don't want to get too far into the weeds here. And again, we're talking with commercial fisherman Paul Burrell, who has decades of experience up in Alaska. He's based here in Washington now, originally from here. He's also involved with and connected with the farming community here locally. He sits on the Whatcom Family Farmers Board as an ex officio member, so we can have better connections between the fishing and farming communities locally. But again, I don't want to get too far into the weeds here, but you know, there there's the debate about hatchery versus wild fish and some people are saying we need more hatcheries we can produce a lot of fish this way other people are saying no that's bad we need more wild fish but this is a different kind of hatchery process that you're talking about here than the state-run hatcheries that we have here in washington state right now right correct correct these these hatcheries do not depend on continuing funding from state taxpayer dollars they will actually, in Alaska, they, they fund scholarships. The, tri- the tribal members here in the tribal partners we have in this state would be the biggest beneficiaries if we had some of these programs here. Now, that would be creating more fish, but not every year is like this. They fish in, come in abund- high abundance, and then sometimes it's lower. Yep. You know, it's, it's different every year, but I think programs like this could benefit but, our state, and we don't have any. And the, and the fish that are actually produced through a program like this are different than what's being produced by our hatcheries now, right? Because there, there have been critiques of our current hatchery system and, you know, um, creating weak fish, uh, too many copies of the same fish, or inbred, or I don't, I, you know, I'm not a fish person, so I can't can't totally wrap my head around it, but genetically weak. And, and that's where this argument often comes from the wild fish crowd that the whole hatchery program isn't a good idea. From what I understand what you're talking about, the result is different. Correct. You know, I'm not a geneticist. I'm yeah. To say that, but, <laughs> but with, with 30 plus years of experience and observation and being involved in the industry, it works. And the biologists that we do talk with say there is no difference between this and a wild fish. It, they, their life cycle is identical. They just don't have a river to go up or they block the river to prevent mixing with the, the true mm-hmm. natural fish in that river. And the, the run timing is, is such that no intermixing can happen. And realistically, they're the same fish because they are required by law to take their brood stock from local rivers so, if they do programs like this. So this is the process that's been working in Alaska. This is not what we're doing here in Washington. Is this also what the Russians are doing, other countries are doing to produce more and more fish? Correct. Yep. They're using the, the Alaska style technique and over there, Japan and Hokkaido as well for a large chum run. Those are actually um, the genetics are Washington chum salmon that they used over there. So wow. they it's it's the real stuff swimming out in the ocean from this side. Why aren't we doing this here in Washington? I think there's a number of different reasons. There's um, I think a lot of it is co-management with the tribes, but mm-hmm. I believe that the future is bright with that. And if everybody can understand that it will benefit to everybody, not yeah. just one person, right. I think that's where we can really, you know, create some bridges between our communities and, yeah. and all the user groups. I think it's a win-win for everybody. And that's, that's what really needs to happen. Well, and the idea has been talked about, if I recall, uh, about doing something like that right here locally, uh, creating this kind of a system, an Alaska-style hatchery system. Um, it would be, you know, I'd be really pumped to see something like that uh, move forward here if, if people can come together on it. Again, talking with Paul Burrell, uh, who is on the waterfront uh, this morning with us here on the farming show. You can hear the train in the background uh, as he... Uh, 
talks to us about what's going on in the world of fishing. And there's actually a glut of fish on the world market, even as we hear about salmon recovery and struggling returns of certain populations on certain streams or, or basins. What, what, what's the upshot then for some of this recovery talk? How does that jive with all this? Because it seems like two totally different stories, Paul. It, it really does. It really does. And sometimes I, I, I have a, a hard time understanding it. But, I, you know, I, I think there's lots of different groups out there. And it's a, it's a function of getting everyone together so they can understand different industries and that there is commonality and common needs and desires between every group, whether it's state or tribal. And I think that conversation, if we can continue it uh, in, in all the areas, we can really kind of overcome some of these things. And also misrepresentation of, of certain numbers coming out on salmon and how that affects our whales. It, it's, there, there's a lot of great things going on, but I, I think that misinformation really confuses people. Well, I mean, there's a few things. Negative news, bad news sells and from a media perspective. And I can say this as someone who's been in media and formerly in news media for quite some time. <laughs> you know, people don't like as much as people say they do. And I think all of us would say, oh, yeah, we like a positive story. We don't want everything to be negative all the time. But what really gets the clicks, what really gets the views, what really gets the listeners engaged um, are, are negative stories. And on top of that, what drives what I now call our, um, and I think I'm borrowing this term from, from Will Honey down in, in Skagit County, but what he calls our uh, nonprofit industrial complex, <laughs> and that's in Washington <laughs> State, but elsewhere as well, um, are problems that need to be fixed. There's no incentive to present a success story because that doesn't mean more grants and funding. Honestly, and that, that's part of the, the inherent bias in the current system that we have. So the stories that we hear are that there are all kinds of problems, and that are, those are the same stories that folks use to continue to drive their efforts. I'm not saying that there are no problems or that it's, you know, that it's a big conspiracy to hide the truth, but it is reality that we hear so much more about the negative and the problems that we're led to believe that it's all doom and gloom. Really, I mean, right now for fishermen, it's doom and gloom for an entirely opposite reason. How, how are people in the fishing community reacting to this right now, Paul? I mean, this has to be rough times. Well, it is, and and I think this is this is just the beginning. We're not we're not there yet. It, the hardest part will come next year when it, it gets even worse, and the year after, which it might level out and be like this year. But it's going to take a number of years for this recovery to take place for our local fleets and Alaska fleets. So. It, it, it is tough. It's like a bad weather cycle for farms or, you know, heavy floods, uh, hard freezes and yeah. or, or or things such. A, I, I know a little bit about the water adjudication that's going on. Yeah. You know, we, we want to avoid the division. We, we need, you know, collaboration these days. And, and you get you get policies like that that um, create more division when we, right. we all need to be working together to solve some of our problems. That's exactly right. What, what does this all mean for you and, and your commercial fishing endeavors i know you're you you've got multiple um things going on in, in your world between fishing and and other endeavors that you're up to you're one of those guys that has big ideas and actually makes them happen um I, has this caused a pivot for your business 
yes, actually, I, I've been watching these, this kind of develop for a while. And, you know, we've gone into a little more vertical integration and it started a trucking end of it too, transportation logistics. Um, it's also trying to use up some of that time of the year to be productive when I knew this type of situation would happen within the industry. It's, it's really concerning. And I, I fear for many of my friends, I'm sure many guys will be fine, but it's as a, as a fisherman who did not come from a fishing family, first generation, mm-hmm. it makes it much harder to, to have that resiliency for some guys getting yep. in it and young, young women as well. Uh, and, and that's the same story for farmers and people growing food on land, you know, um, there's a lot to that story and, and we don't have time to get into that now, but it's incredible. You know, Paul, as I've gotten to know, know you in recent years and, and your involvement um, in the leadership of Watkin family farmers and, and you know, being connected with what we're doing here, it's been fascinating to me to learn just how much these worlds on land and on sea uh, of folks producing food uh, are the same and share the same, so many of the same struggles uh, positives and negatives, honestly. Um, so it's good to hear from you, and and it's good to s- hear some balance to what we understand about what's what's happening to fish. What would you say to folks who are concerned about, you know, fish and feeling like, oh, you know, fish are, you know, we have fish that are on the brink of extinction and things like that. What is the the true story there? Because I do believe there are still some problems. But what do we make of all this when we hear information like you're sharing with us this morning? Well, I think there's a little bit of embellishments right now. I can also say it's a great time to eat salmon because it's going to be a great affordable protein. Throw a little plug in there for my industry. Um, but it's, I think really watch your sources and don't, don't trust everything you hear because from what, from my position, uh, king salmon are abundant in Washington, um, in Alaska, uh, all the other fit, salmonids are, they seem to be doing great. And um, obviously the markets are in the cold storages are full to overflowing this year. So um, I, I would say we, we're not looking at a shortage, but that's coming from a, a simple fisherman's point of view. So, well, this I, is, this echoes so much away here with blueberries and raspberries and, you know, seed potatoes that we have around here and certainly milk. I mean, if we're talking Whatcom County and then so many other um, kinds of food, if you're talking about all of Washington state and there's the ups and the downs and you got to hang on through those tough years. Um, you got to be smart and understand what's happening, what the dynamics in play are and honestly, it's often will separate the wheat from the chaff. Um, you know, people who really are good at what they're doing and have made good decisions and have that long view and are doing things sustainably can usually weather things. And people who aren't don't necessarily make it through those those low times. Um, so best of luck to you. Um, and keep us posted on this as well because... Again, I think it's important for people to see the bigger picture, and there's more than just the very narrow view that we have about the you know few key problems that do need to be worked on and addressed, um, but certainly don't represent the whole view and picture as far as salmon and producing food. I mean, you say you're getting a plug in for salmon, absolutely, and my plug is for any food that's real. Uh, you you know, salmon, beef. Uh, you know, berries, that, that's real unprocessed, healthy food. And that's what we need to be gravitating toward in our food system for a variety of reasons. 
Um, so I'm all about that plug, uh, Paul, and I'll echo that as well. Go eat some salmon, yeah, folks. Exactly. <laughs> one one ingredient foods. They they keep the body healthy. Absolutely. And thank you, Dylan, for uh, reaching out and keeping tabs on other industries. And I think we all working together will come up with great solutions.